we ask this type of question. We go, God, what do you want from me? Like, God, what do you truly want me to do for you? And I think we can just often overcomplicate the answer to this and get all caught up in our heads. But God's word, scripture, makes it abundantly clear and simple many times. And today, our scripture is one of those. And we're going to get a glimpse into God's heart, God's desire, what God wants for us. So if you'll turn with me to 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 7, and we're going to focus on verses 3 through 7. Greg covered 1 and 2 last week, but I want you to see the whole flow of thought here. And while you're turning there, I'd just like to pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. I pray that your word would speak in power here this morning, that you would open up our minds and our hearts to hear from you, Jesus. And we just submit to you, Holy Spirit, and say, come, speak, have your way in us today. And I pray that you would do incredible things here in this room and in our minds and our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 1 Timothy 2, 1-7. First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone for kings and for all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. For this I was appointed a herald, an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. So, what is God's heart for us? What is God's desire for people? What does God want from us? Well, first we see in this scripture, he wants everyone to be saved. His desire is that everyone would be saved, verse 4. So let's just break this down in verse 4. It says, who wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So he wants or he desires. God's heart is for every individual to be saved. Now notice it doesn't say who forces everyone to be saved. That's not what it says here in the scripture because not everyone is saved. He desires everyone. So I just want you to, before we get into some of the complexities of that, Let's take this for what it says. And I just want you to look around in this room right now at other people. Just I know it's kind of awkward, but go for it. Take a look. You, you see old, young, black, white, rich, poor, blonde hair, brown hair, blue eyes, brown eyes. You see all sorts of people in this room. And every single person that you just saw now, and every single person you will ever see, God desires that they would be saved. I, I challenge you to do this when you're at the state fair this year, or when you're in this large, in like a large group setting, and you just see lots of people, and just think to yourself, oh wow, them, 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 them. God desires that each and every one of them would be saved. Now what does it mean to be saved? Well, it means that we're saved by it said in verse 3, God our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
and were saved from, if you were rewind to 1 Timothy 1.15, it said Christ came into the world to save sinners. So very simply, it means we're saved from sin. But how are we saved? Well, it says it in verse 4, by coming to the knowledge of the truth. And we're going to see in a minute that verses 5 and 6 tell us clearly what that particular truth is. And this is the gospel message. So it's not near mere knowledge intellectually, though, of the gospel. The knowing here means to know someone intimately. It's a relationship. It's hearing the gospel, repenting of your sin, and having a relationship with Jesus. You might be thinking as you see verse 4 here, okay, if God is God and he desires everyone to be saved, why is everyone not saved? Is God weak? Absolutely not. God is not weak. He's a gentleman. See, God has given us a real choice with real consequences. God is a gentleman and he will not make you follow him. Think about it like this. God cannot make a round square. Okay, that is an impossibility. So we are given real free choice. So God can't give us free choice, but then go, no, I'm just kidding, and take it away. And so for centuries, this verse has been at the center of a theological debate, and for good reason. And I just, for a second, if you have dove into that debate, that's great. I actually just ask you to get yourself out of that headspace this morning. Here's why. At least for today, I just want you to look at the plain meaning of this text in context. By the way, I have my convictions on that theological debate and would be happy to share them with you and discuss that with you, okay, if you would like to. But the focus here is not on free will or God's sovereignty. The focus is squarely on God's heart for every individual. So I just want you to be amazed, like if you can just put that aside for a second and just be amazed this morning of the immeasurable love of God that he desires me, that he desires you and them and them and them and every single person you will ever see. God desires them. Just be amazed at the love of God for a second and don't get so caught up in the unanswerable questions and theological debates. See, he proved, God proved that he desired everyone to be saved by sacrificially making a way for people to be saved. And that leads us to verses 5 and 6. It says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. So there it is. There's the gospel, the good news. This is the most foundational blueprint of all for God's family, as we've entitled this series. The gospel. See, the gospel isn't just some abstract concept that Paul refers to every once in a while and Matt likes to talk about when he preaches. No, he spells it out clearly what it is. Here's the gospel. It says there's one God. Now, Paul makes it clear From the the get-go, there is one God because this is in contrast to Ephesus. Timothy is in the town of Ephesus. 
And so in contrast to Ephesus, where it was this melting pot of religions, often polytheistic religions, so there's not just one God, there's many gods, that's what lots of people believed, Christianity stands in contrast as a monotheistic religion. One God, there's only one hope. God isn't divided in his desires and intentions. There's one, one God, and one mediator, it says. Now, When we hear mediator, most of us think of a neutral third party who's called in to negotiate a compromise, right? They come in, okay, I'm going to help you meet in the middle, I'm going to help you meet in the middle, and we're going to figure this thing out, okay? The problem is that we are sinful, and God is holy and perfect, and there's simply no meeting in the middle with God. So let let me share it like this. So Imagine you stole a billion dollars from Mark Zuckerberg, and there was video evidence that you stole a billion dollars from Mark Zuckerberg. Why there's video evidence and you didn't do a better job of stealing that money, who knows? But let's just, it's just an imaginative scenario. And, and, I mean, let's be real. Mark could, could use to let go of a billion dollars or so. But, uh, but imagine a mediator gets called in, and he wouldn't, by the way. So this is super fictitious. Mark would bring you to court, but um, I, I think. But uh, imagine a mediator was called in to help resolve this so it doesn't go to court. The problem would be there, was, there would be no middle ground to be reached because you're guilty. There's video evidence. Like there's, A mediator isn't called for here. But imagine this mediator comes in and not... And he comes in and he pays Mark Zuckerberg a billion dollars for you. See, that's more what it's like that Christ is our mediator. Let me, let me say it a little more clearly. Barnab- Barnabas Piper, who's the son of John Piper, if you're familiar with him, said it like this, and I have it on the screen for you. Jesus is an entirely different kind of mediator between God and us. This mediation is not a two-way street bringing our good to God to see what can be arranged. Jesus is the good that is brought to God. He is, get this, both mediation and mediator. Our mediator is in himself our innocence in the eyes of God. He goes to God with his own work, his own perfection, his own death and resurrection as the defense for us, the otherwise doomed. What greater hope could we have? If you and I were to mediate an agreement with God, It would never end in anything other than our guilt and falling short because of our sin. But Jesus did. Jesus does. So we can hope, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. When Jesus returns, bringing glory and perfection with him, we can rest in the knowledge that the one mediating for us can also protect us from stumbling and to make us stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. Jesus Christ is our mediator, but he is also our salvation, both today and forever. Praise God, because there is no meeting God in the middle, that Jesus is is our mediator, but he doesn't just try to find common ground. He brings the common ground himself and makes us right with God. So, Continuing on with his description of the gospel here. So we one God, and we have Jesus, our mediator, who is 
fully man. Look at the end of verse 5. The man, Christ Jesus. Now he emphasizes Jesus' humanity here to really drive home the greatness of Jesus. And he does this also to de-emphasize our works and failed attempts to get right with God. Jesus was not simply a man. He was the man. He was the human that we could not be because of our sin. Notice, though, that it doesn't neglect the fact that Jesus is fully God. Notice the way he says it. The man, Christ Jesus. Christ. Christ meaning Messiah. And the Messiah is God. And he continues explanation of the gospel in verse 6. It says, who gave himself. Jesus chose to give his life. And he willingly did it. He didn't go, okay, fine, dad, if I have to wash the dishes, I'll wash the dishes. I'll go and be a human and die on a cross and rise from the dead. I roll. No, no, no. He took the initiative, saw the dirty dishes, and washed the dishes before he was even asked. He wanted to give of himself. Why? Because verse 4, he desires, he wants all to be saved. He knew he was the only one that could make it happen. In verse 6, at the end, it says that he is a ransom. A ransom is a price paid for release. A price paid for release. So in movies and in shows, often they kidnap the hero of the show's wife or kids, and they demand a ransom. And it's usually a crazy amount of money. That's what a ransom is. See, we are held captive because of our sin, And we are doomed. So a ransom must be paid for us. And that price is a perfect life. A life for a life. But not any life. It needed to be a perfect life killed on our behalf. And that's what Jesus offered. Because he was infinitely perfect and is infinitely perfect, his life counts infinitely for all. Now this doesn't mean that all are saved. That makes no sense in the context of this doesn't mean that all who choose to repent and believe are saved. So he proved that he desired everyone to be saved by sacrificially making a way for us to be saved. The gospel, let me just read it again, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. Amen. Amen. There's the gospel. Never move on from that message right there. Never let that grow stale and old in your heart and your mind. We need the gospel every day of our lives. It's our only hope. So what is God's heart and desire for people? One, that everyone would be saved. Verse 4. Two, to move back a little bit to verse 3. His desire, his heart for people is that we would pray for other people. Let me go back to verse 1. 2 verse 1. First of all, then I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone. Now jump down to verse 3. This is good and it pleases God our Savior. So verse 1, he says, first of all, he's saying, Paul, Paul's saying, hey, the most important task or the most important blueprint for the church is this. It's to pray for other people. Now it's easy to get hung up on praying for authorities And we focused on that last week. But 
we, it's easy to get so fixated on verse 2 there that we miss the whole main point here. And the main point is that we should be praying for others. First of all, pray for others. And then verse 3, this is good. It pleases God our Savior. So why should we pray for other people? Why is praying for others on God's heart? Why is this his greatest desire for his church, for his people? Well, one, verse three, he tells us, because it's good. It's good. Verse two, at the end of it, it says, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness. So think of it like this. Praying for other people can bring about a general goodness in society and in life. Now certainly, certainly we won't have a completely tranquil and quiet life until Jesus returns. But when we pray for other people, we're actually inviting slices and foretastes of heaven to this earth. It's like the Lord's Prayer when, he, when Jesus tells us, to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So as you pray for other people, we need to realize that we are praying for goodness in the community that that person lives in and the life that they live. I'm not simply praying for that specific individual. As I pray for that specific individual, and specifically if they don't know the Lord to be saved, I'm actually praying for the general welfare of that whole person's entire environment. So I'm not just praying merely that they would be saved by Christ, but I'm also praying when I pray for you and you and you, and when you pray for any Specific individual, you are also praying that the Spirit of God would stir every person and place that that person touches. And you probably don't pray that specifically, but that's what happens. Do this, he says, verse 3, because this is good. It brings goodness to our world. My guess is, if you're anything like me, you, you probably don't think of praying for other people that way. But what if we did? That I'm not just praying for them today, but I'm praying for the general goodness of Jesus to permeate their lives and environments. Second reason we should devote ourselves to praying for other people is verse 3, it pleases God. Think back to verse 5 and Jesus being our mediator. See, he continues to be our mediator. It's not just so that we would be saved, but he continues to mediate between us and God so we can have a relationship with him. God's heart and desire for people is that they would have a relationship with him. Not just initially when they repent of their sin and believe in him, but they would continually through prayer be drawn into relationship with God. See, As a dad myself, what pleases me most when I ask my kids, hey, how did school go today? Or, hey, how did camp go this past week? Or, how was your day? What pleases me most is when they actually share specific things that happened. Right? And and that's what we desire as parents. We want them, we want to hear about all of the details. We want to hear how they felt. We want to hear what happened. We want to hear what they didn't like, their questions, the details. See, that's what God is like. He loves it when we open up to him. But unlike me as a dad, it's not because God doesn't know everything that happened and how they felt. God already knows that about us. 
So with, for us in our relationship with God, it's simply because he likes you. And he likes hearing from you. So if you are his child, if you are in Christ, let this sink in. God likes you. And he likes hearing from you. He enjoys hearing from you. It pleases him. Specifically, God likes it when you talk to him about other people. Why? Because you're joining in on his concern and care for that person. And and in so doing, you're joining in on his heart and his desire for every person to be saved. God loves it when you talk to him about other people. He absolutely loves that. The third reason why we should be praying for other people is because, verse 4, it enables more people to be saved. You might be thinking, well, I'm looking at verse 4 right now. It doesn't say that. And you're right. But put all of this together. Verse 1, he urges prayer. Verse 3, he says that it pleases God. So verse 4, he wants all to be saved. So prayer, add the equation up, prayer is a vital part of people being saved. Somehow, in the mystery of God, our prayers change things. People are saved as a result of our prayers sometimes. People come to Christ because someone else asked God to save them. Now, don't put yourself in a mental straitjacket trying to figure all of that out. Just trust God and do it. And watch what God does. Pray that people would be saved and see what happens. So what is God's heart and desire for people? We've seen that, it's, that his desire is that everyone would be saved, verse 4. Verse 3, that we should be praying for others. And verse 7, that we should be heralds. Let me read verse 7. For this I was appointed a herald, an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. And a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So, verse 7, for this, what is this that he's talking about? He's talking about the gospel message he just laid out in verses 5 and 6. Paul was appointed to be a herald, an apostle, and a teacher of the gospel. Specifically, it says here, to the Gentiles. That was his specific calling. Gentiles, just non-Jews. It says he was an apostle. And as I've talked about before, Paul being an apostle, an apostle is someone who's simply God's mouthpiece, much like Old Testament prophets were. Now the qualifications we see as you put the scripture together in the New Testament to be an apostle is you you need to have seen the resurrected Jesus and then been commissioned by Jesus himself to be an apostle. And this happened to Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts. Both of those things happened to him. So Paul has this unique call to be an apostle. This is why he's writing 1 Timothy and why it became scripture. He is clarifying the gospel as he writes this. Now that's, that's not for us today. None of us are apostles. None of us have seen the resurrected Christ and then called by him to be that. But he says, here, I am telling the truth, I'm not lying. Paul's backing this up. Because many of the Ephesians questioned Paul and his apostleship. Because he's like, yeah, you used to persecute him. I don't know. Did you actually see Jesus? And so he's just reminding Timothy, because I'm sure Timothy was getting pressure from other people going, ah, is Paul really legit? Is he actually an apostle? So he's just reiterating that here. But Paul was called to be an apostle. There's his unique calling. 
but he was also called to be a herald. Now, we're probably all thinking, you know, hark the herald angels sing. You know, we, we could just get that in our heads. But that, that song actually helps us with the definition of what herald means. We're not talking about the guy named Harold or an angel even named Harold in that song. Hark the herald angel sings means this was an angel who was sent to bring a message on behalf of God. A herald is simply a messenger on behalf of someone else, often of a king. So a, mess, a herald's job was not to add commentary or opinions to the message that they were given, much like our news sources these days do. Okay, They add all of this unnecessary commentary to the facts. That's not what a herald is supposed to do. They're supposed to come and just bring the message that God has given them to the people they're supposed to bring it to. Paul's job was to go in and share God's message of salvation to Gentiles. And certainly, Paul did this in, in manners. We see this in the book of Acts. He did this in, in different manners that shifted circumstantially, but his message remained the exact same. And this is where Paul and our calling as followers of Christ overlaps. We are to be heralds of the gospel of Jesus Christ to other people. And the methods will shift and change circumstantially, even from day to day, but the message stays the same. And you might think to yourself at this point, cool, but I'm no herald. I'm shy, I'm afraid, or maybe on the other end of the spectrum, I come on way too strong. And I would propose that you simply start being a herald with Paul's first command in this scripture. Verse 1, you remember what it was. First of all, he says, Paul's most important blueprint for the church was to pray for other people. Put all this together. Prayer for others is the hinge of God's heart and desire for people. See, praying for others catalyzes other people being saved. Praying for others actually gets our hearts and minds in a space to where we even want to be heralds and share the good news with other people. Prayer is the hinge. Now I want to share with you from a book on prayer I've been reading lately by Tyler Statton about the life of Dwight L. Moody, who was a 19th century evangelist and preacher. He says his entire evangelistic strategy was prayer. That's it. In an oft-told legend, Many before me have recounted that Moody famously carried a list of a hundred names in his pocket every day of his adult life. One hundred friends who had no relationship with Jesus. And Moody's labor of love was secret, hidden prayer on their behalf. He pleaded with God to reveal himself to each of them in a way that they could perceive and receive as eternal love. And he prayed by name for their salvation. Get this, when he died... 96 names on that list had become answered prayers. A 96% success rate in prayer isn't too bad. I'd take those odds any day of the week. But it gets better. At Moody's funeral, the four remaining names were each in attendance. His four friends were independently so moved by the memorial service that they all came to faith at his funeral. This is inspiring, right? 
But let's get real. Let me just temper this amazing story for a second. And let's just get real. Persistent prayer for other people is not flashy, and it's actually really, really difficult to do. It is really hard to stay faithful to praying for a single individual, much less a hundred of them, daily, weekly even. That is difficult. So let me give you a realistic challenge. And by the way, if you think that that's doable, go for it. Don't let me hold you back. Pray for a hundred people. Pray for a thousand people. Pray for a million. Like, go for it. Get that list. Go for it. But let's, let me just give you a realistic challenge today. What if you just prayed for one person that you know that doesn't know Christ and prayed for them regularly? What if you set a phone reminder to remind you every day or, or every time you see this or that, it reminds you to pray for them? What would happen if we all prayed for just one person to come to know Christ faithfully and regularly and even just half of those ended up being saved? What would happen to this church? What would happen to this community? See, I'm convinced that more followers of Jesus don't share Jesus. They don't evangelize because they see it as this big, hairy monster, this big, intimidating, weighty task that they just don't want to screw it up. And we say things to ourselves like, "Ah, what if I get it wrong? Or where do I even start? Or "I, I don't want to be that guy or that gal. But what if God isn't calling us to that sort of evangelism? What what if God isn't calling us to that sort of sharing Christ? See, we saw a glimpse of God's heart today in verse 4 that he wants everyone to be saved. And we see a glimpse of God's heart in Matthew 11, 28 and 29 as well. So I want to share this with you. Matthew 11, 28 and 29. This is Jesus here. He says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because, here's his heart, I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Lowly and humble. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, describes this word humble the best. He says, meek, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary. He's not easily exasperated. He's the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. The posture most natural to Jesus is not a pointed finger, but open arms. That's what it means that he is lowly and humble in heart. So what if Jesus today What if Jesus isn't pointing his finger at you today saying, why aren't you praying for more people? What if Jesus isn't doing that at all? What if he isn't going, why aren't you sharing Christ with more people? What if instead he's saying with arms open wide, he's going, I hear you. Praying for other people is hard. Sharing Christ with other people is hard. But what if we just do it together? What if we just talk about that person more together. And as you do that, your heart will actually just become more like mine, lowly, humble, and wanting everyone to be saved. I think that's what Jesus is inviting us into today. Let's pray. 
Jesus, I thank you that you invite us into prayer, that you invite us to share Christ with others. It really is an invitation. It isn't like a strong arm pointing a finger at us going, you need to do this more. I thank you for the gospel message that it isn't by our works that we're saved. It's actually by yours that we are saved. And so I pray that the pressure would just fall off our shoulders and that instead we would just walk with you and be intentional in our prayers and our sharing of you with others, and that you would just give us what we need for each moment and each relationship. And Jesus, I, I pray, Father, that you would help us to just operate in the good news of the gospel, that we would operate not for forgiveness, like we could gain your forgiveness or acceptance, but instead that we would operate from forgiveness or from acceptance, because that is who we are. We are accepted and we are forgiven if we are in you, Jesus. And it's because of that that we seek to do anything for you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.